RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack, easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff. Easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel food crate. Slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. Welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. I'd like to welcome a cool fellow New Yorker. He is the New York State Chair for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He's a project manager for F&W Forestry, an ambassador for the Hunt to Eat clothing line, and the podcast host of East to West Podcast. Todd, welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm so excited to talk to you about New York State some of the different things that our New York state government is monkeying around with. Uh, Want to talk turkey hunting because that's coming up in New York state here soon and a bunch of other cool stuff. So Todd, do me a favor, introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, guys. So first I would, I just want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. I love your show. Uh, you have some great episodes and uh, it's a, just thrilled to be a part of it. So uh, really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. So you did a great job on the intro. Um, so you really kind of summed it up, you know, as far as introducing myself, um, I'm a, I'm a lifelong hunter and angler that grew up in the Adirondacks of Northern New York. So it's a great place to grow up. I'm a sixth generation Adirondacker and I was immersed in the outdoors early on in life through my uh, my parents and my dad and so you know I always had that experience like I like to tell people that I just really don't even remember the first time I went fishing or hunting like I have early memories um, of that immersion but we just kind of it was always a way of life growing up and uh, it's a great place if you love the outdoors to to be you know out there and then you know it's always shaped my my major decisions in life, my love for the outdoors, my love for the Adirondacks. I went on to, uh, you know, get a forestry degree and I've been working in the forestry business for almost 25 years now. 
I love conservation. Um, you know, I, stewardship is a very important core value for me and mentorship and trying to help people who um, are mindful about trying to get um, outdoors. So, you know, all of that kind of stuff has always been important to me. And um, yeah, it's it's just uh, glad to be on the podcast and look forward to having some good conversation here. Cool. So a couple of years ago, my girlfriend, Carrie, and I we lived in Saranac Lake for the summer. Um, I had a couple dogs and we, you know, she can work from anywhere. So we took and rented a place from, I don't know, what's the local college there? Paul Smith's. Oh, yeah. Paul Smith's, right. Yep. Yeah. So we lived right there. We did all the Saranac Six. And we kept banging out the ADK 46 high peaks, which if you're probably not from New York State, if you're listening to this, there's 46 high peaks in the Adirondack uh, Park. And it is a huge accomplishment to hike them all. And uh, have you done any? Do you what is the have you done any 46? You know, yeah, I love hiking and there's so much opportunity in the Adirondacks. And so the 46 peaks over 4,000 feet, um, you know, there's so much wild country up here. We have 6 million acres in the park and and like 3 million acres is in the forest preserve. And then you've got all that high peak wilderness area with all those peaks. And, you know, Saranac Lake is a really cool community. And uh, what's interesting is that the the person, uh, there were three people that were the first 46ers and they were Bob and George Marshall and Bob Marshall was later became um, famous across the country for um, being involved with the Wilderness Society and the Bob Marshall Wilderness in um, Montana and he worked for Bureau of Industry Indi- Bureau of Indian Affairs lived up in Alaska for a while but him and his brother George were um, were 46ers with a guy named Herb Clark and Herb Clark was from Saranac Lake he was a local fishing guide. And um, they were teenagers, and and he was the inspiration to get them up there. So it has a really cool history that ties back to Saranac Lake. Um, it's, it's a it's a great place. It's a beautiful spot. It it was extremely relaxing. You know, we'd get up in the morning before the sun. We'd go mountain biking or canoeing and kayaking, and take the dogs for a run. And then I'd go out and train and do computer work, and she'd do her work. And then we'd go, you know do anything i mean then we'd hike something or go and have fun in lake placid and i don't know it was just a it's a phenomenal place to visit if you're from new york or the northeast um i love 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 the high peak region yeah it's really cool do do you have under your belt well, I probably have maybe something like 10 peaks. I, you know, I haven't done a lot of the peak bagging, but I'll tell you what, I spend a lot of time in the woods. And so I do a lot of, I, I have a personal affinity for backcountry ponds because I live down in Lake George area. So I'm about an hour south of uh, Lake Placid and about 45 minutes from King Valley. So I've hiked up in that country. Um, up like along uh, Route 73, going up along Chapel Pond and Giant and the Wash Bowl and Dix and, you know, getting up into Indian Pass. Um, all of that is just incredible. Done Algonquin. Um, but, you know, there's some great country um, going out toward like Speculator and like you get out into like the West Canada Lake Wilderness and the Siamese Ponds Wilderness areas. And it's really cool because 
it's vast, it's roadless, it's forested and rugged, um, but there's not as much traffic out there either. So there's a, there's a lot of recreational focus up in the peaks. And uh, yeah, just kind of like, just kind of by default from where I grew up, I, I spend a lot of time hitting some of those backcountry ponds out there in, in uh, the central Adirondacks. It's cool. Do you do much fishing are you, are you, when you're hitting the ponds? Uh, do I do much? Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Do you do a lot of fishing when you're hitting the different ponds? Oh yeah. So the brook trout, I, yeah, it's great. Uh, the brook trout fishing is, is fantastic in the central Adirondacks. There's wild brook trout, there's different strains. And, um, yeah, I was just talking on the podcast earlier about a week or so ago about ice out trout fishing. And so the ice is pulling out of some of those ponds here over the next couple of weeks. It's a great time. You can hike in fish from shore. There's a window of time where you can catch some really big brook trout. And then you can just, you know, the fishing just heats up through, say, early to mid-June. There's like a window here in the spring where it's just fantastic. So a lot of good opportunities in the backcountry. That's cool. I've got kind of a funny story that I think you would appreciate. When I got out of college uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago, me and my old college roommates, we canoed. Well, Bucks, Bucks nine. So it had to been nine, nine years ago. So we paddled in with my little probably 14, 15 week old puppy, two canoes, four guys, cooler of beer and some food. And we paddled the Oswagachi. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, it was unbelievable. We didn't see a single person and we paddled for miles and miles and didn't see anybody. And, and you just kind of pull up to a campsite and, pitch your tents and get ready for the weekend and we decided we had to go hang you know our supplies for bears and ended up getting lost in the woods near dark and oh, we know we completely got lost i mean so, so what happened did you spend the night in the woods or what? oh yeah and it rained <laughs> And it was, it was like early June. So up in the Adirondacks in early June, you could have pretty chilly nights still. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we froze our butt off. It was wet. It was cold. We basically devised a plan the entire night because we couldn't sleep on how we were going to get ourselves out of this predicament in the morning. And I remember like maybe catching a little bit of shut eye like leaning back on a backpack everybody's huddled together and buck was sleeping on my chest and he sat up this little baby puppy and he starts growling and i'm like uh-oh you know this isn't good <laughs> oh. and we did you know nothing happened but we we ended up spreading out come sunrise and i bet we were only 150 yards from camp we just had got up in the middle of, you know, having fun and catching up and hadn't seen each other in a while. And like, Hey, let's go hike in. We'll, we'll put the bear bag and, you know, bear canister up and hang it and then come back to camp and finish our bonfire. And we didn't pay attention. You know what I mean? You, you don't think you're going to get lost. And yeah, so <laughs> it all looks the same too, you know, and that's a crazy story. And that, uh, I lived up in Wanakina and, um, on the uh, Dead Creek flow there, like up at the ranger school for a while, like up at the sure. Oswagachi Cranberry Lake. And that's some of the wildest country in the Adirondacks up around the Oswagachi. Like you're, you're right there by the five ponds wilderness. And it's just, you know, I've been there too, man. Like where 
you just step a few hundred yards away from camp and it just all looks the same. You have no idea where you are. Exactly. <laughs> that's a, that's a crazy story. Yes. Uh, I mean, we just, we got back in the morning and we ended up taking a nap and had an awesome time the rest of that day and learned a valuable lesson, but that was wild. It was something that every time we see each other, no matter how long we've been, you know, gone and hadn't seen each other or I could see him two weeks from now and he's going to turn to somebody and be like, I got to tell you a story about me and Bob. It's funny. It's definitely <laughs> bonded us all together again. But, but anyways, hey, one of the reasons um, Kevin and I wanted to have you on the podcast, this is going to be the most difficult topic, and then I think we'll get into the more fun stuff because it means a lot to me. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm a dog trainer and a waterfowl hunter and a pheasant hunter in New York, and we also run hunt tests and field trials. And so during the summertime, there'll be events throughout New York, Buffalo, Syracuse, um, out towards Albany, down near Binghamton, all across the state, there's hunt tests and field trials where we train our dogs and then judges come out and, and we test our dogs or trial our dogs against a standard or each other's dogs. And recently it, it's kind of, and I've tried to be somewhat of a pioneer of this using social media is there's different legislators uh, in the New York state government who are trying to create bills that would affect this. So one bill is stating that you cannot use um, any sort of game animal uh, for a test or trial or competition. So that would take out fishing derbies. That could possibly take out our stuff. Um, you know, and then, well, I'll, I'll ask that question. Like, have you heard about this? Have you seen this in, in your years of experience in the outdoor industry in New York? Where do yeah. you think this is going? So, yeah, glad to talk about it. And, uh, you know, like you, I've been watching it really closely. So I've been paying attention to it and, Maybe we could talk a little bit about the history of it and, and the status, and then we can talk about some of the concerns that um, that we have as a community over some of the general overgeneralized language with the proposed bill, because it really just, you know, just leaves a lot of questions. So if that's OK, you know, I'll start out with a little bit of history. So, so yeah. the way this shakes out is back in January. Um, in the the assembly, um, assembly person Glick from I think she's from Glen, uh, Greenwich Village, um, introduced into the environmental committee, the DEC committee in the assembly, uh, proposed Bill 722, which is you know going along the lines of what you're talking about. It's a prohibition of hunting or taking wildlife uh, through contests, uh, derbies, tournaments for you know prizes, and um, so. Now, interestingly, what happened shortly thereafter is over in the Senate, um, a companion bill hit, and that was number uh, 4253. It was introduced by Senator, I think, Senator Martinez. So you have a situation where in both chambers of the legislature, you have proposed language. So that raises a lot of eyebrows for folks. Now, like, interestingly, did a little research on this, and um, this language has been are introduced into the legislature for several years running. So what's you can go back to like 2009 
and the um, the language was being proposed. Unfortunately, it just never went anywhere. So like the way the legislature works is that in any given session, you might have like 10,000 proposed uh, bills and then maybe like 500 might come to fruition at the end of the year. So uh, a lot of stuff in, in right now they're in committee and they haven't seen them on the calendar for action. But I think where people, you know, have really expressed concern is on a couple of different things, because historically what's different this year than in the past um, is that, the, you know, the, the both chambers and the governor's office are all controlled by one party. OK, so there, there seems like there could be a little more momentum there from downstate Democrats. And uh, I'm not implying that that Democrats aren't conservationists. There's a lot of friends that I have. Um, I'm an independent, so I don't want to get too political about it. But there is a perception that, yeah, you know, that we you know, that there's a concern that more language might, you know, flow through than the normal just because of the nature of the political scene here in New York. And, and then the other concern is, um, is the fact that it's really as it's, you had attested to and you mentioned about the field trials and everything. It's really generic language. So like the way it reads, it says, you know, I'll read it's like Article 14. It says it shall be unlawful for any person to organize, sponsor, conduct, promote or participate in any contest, competition, tournament or derby with the objective of taking or hunting wildlife for prizes or other inducement or for entertainment. So you get some really crazy, like what does other inducement and for entertainment mean? You know what I mean? Right. So it becomes really subjective and like, and what's happened is there's this, um, in other parts of the country, there's some, some wording out there that's similar uh, for like banning, say for instance, coyote killing contests, which are sure. maybe controversial and, you know, that that's something as a hunting community, you kind of have to look at and figure out, is that something we want to do? But in this case, it's like unintended consequences through general language can be really detrimental. And so like you're talking about the concerns about the field trials, and those are legit concerns. You know, you don't want to get into a situation where you're diminishing the future of hunting and fishing. We're at a, a, a crossroads where we need to be doing quite the opposite, right? We need to be focusing on R3, the recruitment, the retention, the reactivation, getting the next generation of hunters out there. And the field trials are a very, you know, a good way of doing that. And, you know, I'll give you another example of a situation because like when you're thinking about the ethics of, um, you, you know, should we be doing this or not? So it's not just a matter of saying, you know, our hunting tournaments ethical or not but it's like looking at it and saying okay when can they be and when are they promoting more benefits than than not and you know i just talked to a friend about a a derby that they have um, through their conservation rod and gun club it's a squirrel hunting um, weekend and they get out and they get some young kids involved and they go out and they shoot some squirrels then they have this crazy nice wild game dinner right and when they're doing the wild game dinner they're talking about conservation and so there's like that's a situation where you're doing a lot of good and it's more good than harm you know so i that's kind of a long-winded answer i hope that kind of gave you enough you know from from my perspective what i understand the situation to be and what the concerns are um but yeah i i feel like the, the what's dangerous is you know the fact that it's just general language and um, and that that can be, you know, detrimental with unintended consequences for the things that we're doing that's, you know, for the good. Sure. And there's also rumors. Well, rumors, there's another bill 
it's A00600 from Rosenthal. And that's the, it prohibits the state's participation in artificial pheasant propagation activities, closes any state-owned or operated pheasant production facility. And for those of you who don't know, excuse me, New York State does a few different things for pheasant hunting. We don't have any more wild pheasant in New York State. So there's there's um, state-owned facilities, like there's a jail in central New York that uses inmates to help raise pheasants, and we release pheasants on state land, and therefore we have a pheasant season. We can go to 3,000 acres right by Kevin and Mai's old house you know, that we grew up in, and we can hunt pheasants or anywhere that they release them, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's other places that are family-owned businesses that supply the state with pheasant. And so those would go out of business. Um, and there's rumor that besides this bill, making it not okay for New York State to own or operate a facility, there's also rumor that they're going to try and stop stocking pheasant by 2020. Yeah, so, you know, and that's a concern because pheasant hunting, in my opinion, can be a great gateway for new hunters like you know i have some friends that think about okay how can we introduce people to hunting in a way that they can have fun that they can take to it that it's enjoyable and you know that's an opportunity where you can get out and and shoot some pheasants or hunt some pheasants and be outdoors um and with your friends and a few dogs and you know in my mind it's it's a gateway it's a potential gateway and you know i feel like um personally you know i'm of the opinion that we ought to be looking to maintain those kinds of opportunities for new yorkers and for future generations instead of trying to derail it yeah i 100 percent agree i think to your point of bringing new people in it's a an extremely low cost of entry right mm-hmm you might get your hundred dollar hand me down eight seventy and an orange blazer, you know, and you, you're out hunting pheasants. Um other things that make it even more fun, you can do it for an hour. You don't have to sit in the freezing cold and be still and quiet. You can be with a group. You can hunt over dogs. So young people, anybody really, I don't know anybody that doesn't enjoy watching a dog work. Um so it, it's a great way to get people outside during the fall, teach them about hunting, teach them about conservation. And I think that's where, you know, you come in even more is with backcountry hunters and anglers and your forestry background is we as hunters are conservationists. So some of these potential legislators are quote unquote conservationists, but in a different light. Right. That's they look at it from a different lens. And how do we as two New Yorkers who want more natural habitat, want more hunting privilege, want younger generations to take over and keep playing this game and, and enjoying the outdoors? How do we keep that going in a state that seems to want to have their own hands on it and, and their agenda, if you will? What, what do you I mean? Yeah, That's a yeah, really those are a question, but I'd like your opinion. It's it's a great question, and it's something 
you know, that we need to grapple with in the hunting community and figure out and quite frankly, embrace and and just look at it as an opportunity to to be leaders. Um, so, you know, and the cool thing about pheasant hunting, I'll just go back to that real quick. I, you know, some other states, I mean, they just uh, like I have some friends in Minnesota and pheasant hunting is such an important event in Minnesota that when it, the pheasant opener comes up. Um, they take the governor out. I mean, the governor of Minnesota goes out on the opener, you know, for pheasant hunting. And so, you know, there's, that's a really important uh, tradition and it's very effective for getting new hunters in, uh, in the field, just like you were saying. So, you know, that, I just want to leave that where it is, but just say that, um, you know, again, on that pheasant hunting, it was, uh, it's an important tradition and uh, we need to, to consider that moving forward. So the conservation question, you know, it's a big one. It's it's hard to get our hands around. I, I would say that, you know, hunting, if you look at the history of hunting and conservation, when you look at the 20th century conservation movement with people like Theodore Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell and Clinton Hart Miriam and all of those people, you know, that brought wildlife back from the brink. They were environmentalists. They were conservationists. They were wildlife managers. So that you really had this situation where hunters were leading the way and hunters are the, you know, the original user pay setup. Um, you know, billions of dollars go into conservation funding through Pittman Robertson and license sales and Dingle Johnson and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, hunters have always played a big role in conservation. And then somewhere along the way, you know, in the 20th century, there was a little bit of a divergence, you know, from like, you know, the hunting and, and fishing community and the so-called mainstream, I'll call it the environmental movement. Uh, but moving forward, I kind of feel like what we need to get back to, there's a couple of things I would say. One, I think it's hunters and anglers. I think we have an opportunity to be conservation leaders because there's nobody out there. I mean, there's everybody's stakeholders. And so I, I value everybody's experience and opinions, whether they hunt or not. What I am saying is that, you know, hunters have a unique situation because of our connection to the land, because of how much time we spend out there, uh, because of what we learn and appreciate and all the stuff that we give back. We have an opportunity to be leaders in broader discussions and not just hunting and angling questions. But, you, you know, when you look at conservation in public lands and private land stewardship and forests, and clean water and clean air and all that stuff. You know, those are all common goods. And so I feel like there's an opportunity. Um, I feel like it's important to build partnerships. It's important to portray hunting and fishing in a positive manner to broader society, to be leaders and, um, you know, to, to try to have a seat at the table. Because if, you know, the old cliche is if you're not at the table, you're on the table, right? Absolutely. Yep. So, so I think that's a cool segue to talk about backcountry hunters and anglers. If you could, before we dive into your role in New York State, if you could just give a elevator pitch for backcountry hunters and anglers. Y yeah, sure. So the simple thing, uh, you know, to say it quickly, I would just say that if, you know, as Americans, we have 640 million acres across the country that are public lands that are available for all of us. And whether we have the opportunity to use all that or not, or any of it, you know, it's still there and it's there for our kids and it's there for their kids. So we have this tremendous 
gift, this tremendous privilege through our public lands. And if you use public lands, you know, maybe in New York or in other places, if you like to fish, you know, if you use public access, then, you know, there's no other group out there that has a, a dialed in focus for working on public and lands like backcountry hunters and anglers. So what what they do nationally is, you know, they work to protect in in short words, they work to make sure that we have quality places to hunt and fish across the country. And so they have a really cool story. Um, they were formed around a campfire in Oregon in 2004. Uh, there were a handful of people like Mike Beagle and, and uh, Tony Hackard and some other visionaries. And it was just a small group. It was like a dozen people. And today there's 35,000 members across the country. Uh, they're based in Montana and Missoula. Land Tawny is the CEO. He's got a ton of energy and he's built an incredible community. And um, yeah, it's one of the cool things about BHA is I think that might be a little different than, you know, a lot of other groups is like the demographics. It tends to attract young, energetic people. So like people that are mid 20s, early 30s, women, men, you know, people that are just getting started into hunting and fishing. You know, they're, they're, there's this attraction to BHA. There's this energy there. And, um, you know, they're they're looking for like minded people. They're looking for mentors. They're looking for people to stand up for hunting and fishing. And yeah, that's that's what BHA is about. Really cool. Yeah. So I'm going to throw this out there. I don't I really don't know the answer. So if I if it costs 20 bucks to become a BHA member and I go online right now and I become a member. Where does that 20 bucks go to? And then what can I expect as a member to participate? Yeah, it's great. So, yeah, you can go to www.backcountryhunters.org. It's their website, backcountryhunters.org. It's $25 for an individual membership. And so what that does is um, the memberships um, get split between the local chapter and like the national organization on, on a level. You know, so like when there's a new membership um, fee. The local chapter, like, for instance, in New York or wherever state you're in, you know, that first year you're going to get part of that money is going to go back to the chapter for on the ground grassroots efforts. So that's really cool. And, you know, what you get as a member, um, aside from, you know, all the intangibles, like, you know, um, just being with a great group of people, you get um, you get a subscription to the Backcountry Journal, which is uh, comes out quarterly that that's worth 25 bucks in its own self it's just like a great magazine it's it's um got all sorts of good content stories updates about what's going on conservation issues across the country so you get um into the database you're going to get um into a chapter database uh, we have plenty of events going on on the individual chapter level so like in new york state we've had public land cleanups We've planted uh, willows along the Salmon River for stream bank restoration. We have pint nights. We've done storytelling at Filson in New York City. We have a chapter rendezvous uh, coming up this summer at West Kill Brewery. So you'll have um, access to all those events and all that information and just a, a great bunch of people. Very cool. So that yep. money, part of that money goes straight into conservation, I'd imagine, or is it kind of like lobbyists that, that fight for our conservation. Yeah. So it's, um, so the thing with BHA is, um, so it's like, 
so like for instance like um when you you have the elk foundation right so like you have certain conservation groups that are doing like on the ground um like habitat restoration work say for instance and so the the money that the membership that goes to bha is going you know is go it's indirectly impacting all of that because all of that stuff that's happening is happening in bha's case through 35,000 volunteers okay so the the staff they run pretty lean at bha you know um, and they have an incredible staff across the country chapter coordinators and you know people in missoula communications experts conservation policy experts and everything what makes bha tick is its grassroots work so the cool thing about it is like a lot of the stuff that's going on on the on the ground is done through volunteer work and so the money that comes from the memberships is really going toward amplifying and building and promoting all of that if that makes sense you know it's like it's going to the organization to build a grassroots you know community of volunteers across the country and you know their goal is to without speaking for them because i'm not an employee i'm just a volunteer but their goal is to amplify the energy that all the members already have and to provide some focus. That's really cool. Yeah. I definitely have done a little bit of research on it. And I think it's something that I want to participate in. And I kind of alluded to the fact that I just, I feel like uh, I'm drinking from the fire hose sometimes. So I don't have a lot of free time and, and then divide it up with family time and, you know, leisure, relax. But there's something that draws me to it. And I think spread out across the country, more people caring about the outdoors, more people who aren't pointing political fingers that say, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I like this, I like that, don't take that from me, give me this. I think if we all can kind of come together in a certain way where we look at what we, what every group, I don't care, left, right, up or down, what every group can come to is we, we enjoy being outdoors. We like to hunt. They like to hike. Or we like to do this. They like to do that. If we can all come together in a certain even playing field and protect the public land, that's everybody's, I think that's important. And I think that country hunters and anglers is doing a really nice job of threading that needle between the hunters and anglers and the people who don't. Yeah, that's, it's really well said. And I'll say something else too, that complements that. And I think that, uh, and this goes back to that conversation we were having about our role in the conservation discussion. And that's one thing is like labels and everything. And so like, it's important to remember, like, you know, we self-identify as hunters, we self-identify as anglers, but you know, we like to do a lot of other things too, right? And so, like, I like to paddle. We were talking about hiking earlier, about the high peaks and Bob Marshall and the 46ers. I have a kayak. You know, I like to ride my bike. I run. And so, you know, all of those things, the benefits, you know, that we get from public lands and from good private land stewardship, you know, they benefit all of us, whether we're Republican or Democrat, whether we call ourselves a hunter or we put on our hiking hat or whatnot. So, you know, getting away from the labels and just looking at the common good and saying, hey, you know, these we can come together here and work on this stuff and get past our own, 
platforms and, and you know, the way we see things, um, man, there's there's good stuff that can happen, you know, when you take that approach. Couldn't agree more. Do so, you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, go ahead, Kev. You got something. No, that's fine. We can, I mean, Todd can go ahead. I just ahead want to and... hear what he has to add about that country hunters and anglers and then get more into some other fun stuff too. Sure. Yeah, I I, I will just say for, for backcountry hunters and anglers, I'm, you know, in New York State, uh, I can just say how proud I am of all the volunteers and all the board members. Um, the chapter is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, you, you know, just a few short years ago, it was just a handful of us. And uh, we're probably going to reach a thousand members across the state this year, um, which has happened over just a, sh- a few short years. So lots of energy, incredible people. We've been working uh, outdoor expos. We were at the Syracuse show and Suffern and, you know, our volunteers come out and just, you know, they are relentless. They just do what needs to be done to get stuff moving ahead. And uh, yeah, I couldn't be prouder of the community that we have, you know, on a chapter level here. So backcountryhunters.org, if, um, you know, 25 bucks gives you a national membership, and the chapter membership too. So there's not extra money for the chapter membership. If you live in New York, like, you know, Kevin, um, you'll get that um, as part of your $25 annual membership. Yeah, that's pretty cool. awesome. I'm i I'm a huge fan. I've, I was saying offline, I guess that a coworker and I like to BS about it pretty frequently. He's a huge elk hunting guy. And uh, so we end up having a whole lot in common, but um. I guess I wanted to transition over a little bit into how you how you use public lands. Um, I know, well, you, you work more in the private sector, but um, how was your hunting season? Yeah, I'm always glad to talk about hunting and, and <laughs> public know. lands. I don't so, like to uh, hang out with guys who don't. <laughs> yeah, so um, hunting season was just incredible this year. Uh, so I have, I have two stories. Um, one of the stories is that I had the opportunity to go out and hunt um, in Colorado, in Southwest Colorado, in the San Juan National Forest, public land, do-it-yourself elk hunt with my friend, Jeff Jones. And uh, we had an incredible time. Um, We did not get an elk this year, uh, but the experience was incredible. You know, we were hunting at 10,000 feet in the backcountry in a floorless shelter, and uh, we saw elk. We saw some amazing, amazing country, and uh, that's the second trip I've had the opportunity to do for elk hunting out in Colorado, same location, and I'd never have that opportunity if um, if we didn't have public lands because it was just a, you know, it was a budgeted do-it-yourself trip. It was an incredible experience, and so I encourage everybody, if there's anybody out there that ever wants to, you know, hunt in the West or they dream about a do-it-yourself hunt or just getting out there for like a pronghorn hunt or a mule deer hunt or an elk hunt, just go do it. You won't regret it. It's incredible. And then, you know, got back, that was in the third week of October and uh, deer season is something that I really look forward to. I mean, that's how I cut my teeth as a hunter is on, you know, in the big, big woods in the Adirondacks. And so, we were talking earlier about the the public lands here in the Adirondacks, and we've got upwards of almost 3 million acres. So what I really am passionate about is, um, is still hunting and tracking deer on snow. And this year, the conditions were perfect for it. So we had snow by like just after election day. And um, 
yeah, I, I think it was the third week of October, uh, November and uh, had the opportunity to get into some of my favorite backcountry and was able to shoot a nice buck. I had to hike three miles on snowshoes to get to that spot. So You're kidding that was like me. A, no, so that was I was hunting on snowshoes and I got back to this remote spot. Nobody had been in there in like a week. And um I was just about ready. It was like but you know, I left at daylight, left my truck at daylight and just about to give up. You know, it's like one thirty in the afternoon. It's gonna be dark at four thirty in the Adirondacks. And uh I no sooner broke down off this mountain and the buck just cross paths with them and it was over in like five seconds and i was so grateful for that buck it was uh it was an incredible experience so that's my hunting season yeah it was it was pretty cool yeah it was great so it's something that i'll just never forget and uh it's i enjoy it and if anybody you know the adirondacks offer a deer hunting season that's you know it's a unique big woods experience and in my opinion you know, you have the Adirondacks and you have Western Maine and like the Northern Forest. And uh, for people that are interested in like a backcountry wilderness deer hunting opportunity, it's an affordable, fun kind of hunting trip. And, uh, you know, just if you want to try something else, if you, you know, if you enjoy deer hunting, um, you know, the deer densities are lower up here, but, you know, the, the trophy is in the trip and itself and the experience and it does not let it does not let down. It's a great experience. I love it. I really like that quote, the trophies in the trip. Um, yeah. That's a that's a nice little quote. Um, yeah. I, I, my friend Dusty Corrin says that, so I'm going to shout yeah. out and give him credit for that. I don't want to plagiarize him. Well, but, Dusty's uh, got yeah. a hell of a vocab. I like that. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but tell me, uh, so so this, this buck just crossed your path? Was he, I mean, did he damn near run you over or – um so, were you hiking down you a path or... yeah 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 so you know what happened was um yeah so this this is how things rolled so i um hiked back in there at daylight and it was probably 9 30 10 o'clock and i had walked probably three miles and had never cut a single deer track and i'm thinking okay they are just not in this country for whatever reason but i'm going to continue on i was hunting this ridge along a very remote big uh, marsh like a big wetland complex that ran for several miles and i hiked up onto this ridge that overlooked that and it's like by this time it's like 9 30 10 o'clock in the morning and i got onto deer tracks and so in the adirondacks the deer are pocket animals so they're not like evenly dispersed across the forest and so you have to work for them and find where they are at that particular time that range a lot and so I had gotten into this area. I found some fresh tracks. There was a buck with a couple of does. He had rubbed. There was, you know, fresh shavings on top of the snow. So I was confident that they weren't that far away. And so I started following those tracks and then cut a bigger buck track that was, um, this kind of a long story, but what he was doing was he was checking them out downwind. And then he was, looked to me like he was heading up on the next mountain. There was like a bench up there, like a flat spot. And I was pretty sure that that buck was going to go up there in bed. So I thought he was laying up there. So I left the deer that I found originally, tracked that other buck for like three hours. Um, now nah, it wasn't three hours, but it was a couple hours. And what happened is um, he went up on that bench. And so I, I left the track and I went downwind and I circled above thinking that he was going to be bedded there. And I was going to try to shoot him in his bed. 
and he never betted. So what I found is he just kept going. So he got up on top of the mountain and uh, by this time it's afternoon and I'm getting discouraged and I'm thinking, I am never going to catch up with this thing. He's going to just run my legs to stumps. And so I walked back off the mountain and backtrack and went back down into the area that he was in. And that's when I ran into that other buck. So that other buck, you know, so I guess the moral of the story is if you're hunting in an area where a buck feels comfortable, you know, there might be other bucks that also feel comfortable in that area. And that's kind of what happened. So I just happened to be going back down into this remote bowl. I looked up, this buck was running, like quartering, and um, I grunted. He stopped 30 yards away and you know, I was fortunate to make a good shot and it was all over in like five seconds. So, and then reality set in like, Oh my gosh, you know, like I'm like three miles and you know, I have snowshoes and I've got to pack this thing out. And, uh, I ended up, uh, I couldn't pack it out. It was late. So I, 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 um, butchered it and put it in game bags and just hung the game bags in a tree. And uh, went back the next day and packed them out with my frame pack. So what a cool experience. It was fun. Yeah, no doubt about it. Do you have to worry about when you say you hung it in the Adirondacks, what do we have to worry about? Coyotes and bears or just bears? Yeah, you know, so um, probably weren't bears at that time, though, right? Nah, probably not bears. But you know what I was worried about was like, you know, the coyotes for sure. And then like, um, maybe even like a fisher or like a bobcat or something like that, that could get up in a tree, a marten, you know, something that could disturb the meat. So what I do is I try to leave scent on it. So I hang the bags. Like in this case, what I did is I urinated at the base of the tree and left my own scent. And then I took my coat, which was kind of sweaty. And I put that over the game bags and I just left enough scent to think that maybe that might deter any critters from getting into it. And uh, was really, I just sighed a heavy, heavy sigh of relief the next morning when I and everything. So it was untouched. That's so cool. Yeah. That's really, yeah. really cool. Is that mostly how you hunt is still hunting and tracking or do you sit in the deer stand ever? Well, I, you know, I'm kind of a generalist and it just whatever works at the time of year. And, and I've done both and, and both have their place. And, you know, I own one tree stand. And I do like to like early season is a good time to hunt. The weather's still nice up here. And so, you know, I, I if I'm bow hunting, I, I sit in the stand and just try to find a nice funnel like everybody else and and let things go. But I got to say that by nature, I'm a wanderer. You know what I mean? So like I am a kind of guy that would rather I have more enjoyment walking six or eight miles a day in the backcountry than ever trying to sit still in a tree stand and i admire people that have the patience to be able to sit in the tree stand for hours and hours and hours um and it's just kind of like my nature and personality that i struggle with that so (laughs) so you get me out in the backwoods and like the still hunting and the tracking and it just you know fits my personality and my and my you know desire to be in the wilderness and uh yeah that's what i really enjoy this year was the first year I had I didn't sit in my tree stand at once. I just ground hunted the whole time. It was fun. You ever busted someone... grouse while you're out there? Sorry, oh yeah, Bobby. grouse. You know, let's talk about you know for your listeners. So like we we've, we've been talking about deer hunting here, but like the Adirondacks, there's a couple of things for people that are interested in in bird hunting and dogs for for your community. 
And let's, you know, first we'll talk about grouse and upland bird hunting. And then also, um, and then we could talk like waterfowl for a little bit if you want to, because you have like the Lake Champlain corridor. Sure. And all yeah. that stuff is incredible. So, yeah, you know, the, the grouse um, are just great birds. And I grew up hunting grouse as a kid, you know, and it's something that I've, I've enjoyed. I, you know, I tend to I cut my teeth as a kid just going out um late season after the snow like after deer season winds down grouse season goes through like february 28th so it's just something up here that i've always i remember as a kid just going out and shoot look at the grouse and that was fun and you know the interesting thing is is like there's some debate going on right now um with grouse habitat uh, because what's happening is our young forest structure is is growing older you know new york has 17 million acres of forest across the state and it's generally about the same age. It was all, you know, it was all reforested at the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s. A lot of it was, you know. And so what happens is you have this fairly homogeneous um, forest that, that's getting older. And so the grouse really do well, as you guys know, in like forest conditions that are like young, like with aspen and birch. And like with some like maybe 15 to 20 year old small cuts, you know, they really thrive in that. So, um, you know, what I find here in the Adirondacks is that the grouse habitat, like, for instance, we have uh, working forests that have conservation easements on it. And I think there's like a million acres of those across the North Country. And so some of that has public access. Some of it still leads to hunting clubs. But those pockets where you have some forestry management and some young forests um, are, are great places to look for, for grouse habitat. You can find some birch and some aspen, and um, you can find that on like the DEC State Land Interactive Mapper SLIM and look for those conservation areas. Just do some research on, you know, whether they're open for public land hunting or not. But yeah, it's fun. I have a good friend through BHA, John Armistead, who's got a dog named Trek who just loves grouse hunting and the Catskills. Um, and then, you know, we've got the young forestry, uh, young forest initiative in the state going on on the wildlife management areas where they're trying to do um, 10 percent of young forest structure across the state um, for, you know, which and that's a rising tide because that benefits grouse, but it also benefits a whole bunch of other species, too. So um, it's good stuff. I feel like there's good stuff there and great opportunity for grouse. Um, and then what I was going to say about the waterfowl is that. Um, so I, this is something that I want to get involved in because I, there's so many things, you know, for people that love the outdoors, there's always something we haven't done that we want to try. There is some incredible waterfowl hunting along the like places like the Lake Champlain corridor and like up along the St. Lawrence corridor. And like, for instance, the, the geese, like um, in September, we have a very good Canada geese season, uh, season and there's like, I think the bag limit is like 15. There's some incredible opportunities. Oh, yes. It's nuts. It's nuts, right? And then there's like snow geese. And then like on Lake Champlain, there's like the dabbler ducks. There's, you know, there's the mallards and the teals and the black ducks. And then there's some, there's even, even diving ducks. Like some, uh, I think I read that there's, I don't know ducks that well, but like uh, golden eye and buffle heads and some others. So yeah, yeah, a so, lot of opportunity in New York for some good duck hunting. It's it's kind of a a good, you know, best kept secret sort of thing. But if you do some some soul searching and and figuring out where to go, like there there's some good stuff around. 
Yeah, for sure. So, and so what do you guys like to do? Like, uh, you guys are working your dogs. Are, are you focusing uh, on upland hunting or do you do a lot of waterfowl or a little bit of both? Well, if there's a dog involved, there's definitely, uh, we're involved as well. But um, Bob has, his like name of the game is with retrievers. Um, but we both actually have English setters. So we've kind of gotten more into the upland stuff somewhat recently too so it's just been incredible there's always something to do to get outside and enjoy being you know with your buddies and with your dogs and you know I think hunting with a dog is is interesting because you it just like you don't have to be as quiet I guess it's it's more of a partnership and um it's just a different style of hunting where you know we were kind of talking about it earlier where it's a good gateway into hunting to, to go grab a gun and throw an orange hat on and, and walk a field and watch a dog and enjoy it and, and, you know, shoot the breeze with your buddies and, and not have to be quiet sitting in a deer stand, like you were saying, can just kind of get boring. Um, it's just incredible. And the same thing with, you know, sharing a duck blind. You can sit on a boat and drink some coffee and hang out and you don't have to worry about you know, a smell or anything like that. And it's just, okay, well, there's ducks flying, you know, put your head down and be quiet. And, and, you know, then you can go back to laughing and having a great time. So I guess to answer your question, anything with a dog, you know, we're, we're fair game on Bob and I started a Christmas Eve grouse hunt tradition. Uh, we still have yet to get a Christmas grouse. <laughs> it's worth the effort though <laughs> yeah oh we i mean we had a great time uh so that'll <laughs> that we're, we're going to continue that um but it it's just incredible i mean bob ends up being a little bit busier than i am i do more of a nine to five sort of job so um and, and some lone duck stuff too as well but um i'm i end up doing a little bit more small game hunting and stuff too just to get outside and, and enjoy, you know, the the state land that we have near our house that we're fortunate to to have so close by. It's just incredible. You know, why not throw a pair of snowshoes on and see if you can, uh, you know, sit and listen for a squirrel or something just fun like that. It's just good to be outside. It It is good to be outside, and uh, I love it, too, and it's uh, it's so much fun, and breaking things up, and, you know, I like to ice fish, and I do that with my daughter. My daughter's six. And so it's it's just like having different opportunities to be outdoors throughout the years is really cool. And, um, you know, I grew up with um, my exposure to hunting dogs was like beagles and hounds. Right. So like when I was a kid, we didn't um, my dad never had like a bird dog. But what we my dad and my uncles loved to like snowshoe hare hunt. And so there's this whole tradition up here in the Adirondacks with hunting dogs with snowshoe hares. And um, for any listeners that ever might have an interest in checking that out, it's so cool. Like the the hares are fun to hunt. Um, they're incredible animals. And, um, you, you know, like I have a cousin who runs guide service and he's got, you know, some beagles and getting out in the out in the woods in the wintertime, the hair season runs through like the third week of March and watching those dogs work and like, and seeing like how they, how they react to like different conditions, because there's like certain dogs will do and well and like thrive in certain conditions, like certain snow, right. And certain 
like scent and the cold weather and the pressure and all that stuff. And yep. there's like the whole strategy of like, okay, if there's a lot of snow, like, a, you know, a slightly bigger dog with longer legs might do a little better than one of your shorter dogs. But like, what's really cool is seeing those dogs work together. And like, there's dogs that are really persistent on scent with following those rabbits around. And, you know, they get really tuned into that. And then there's other dogs that will just like, they complement each other is what I'm yeah. saying. You know, you have, if you have a couple, they can work together. And it's just like, I have so much fun. I, I have never gotten tired of listening to those beagles, like their deep voice. They're like, they're banging yeah. um, when, when they're on. The have you ever owned a beagle? Yeah, I have. <laughs> and, and that's a whole different discussion. Like beagles are like, no, it's just like, uh, they're independent. I mean, <laughs> they're tough to own. Yeah. I had one that just had his own way of doing things. And like, he, he'd run through town and he'd go and he was like one of the most independent dogs I've ever had. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally know where you're going with that. <laughs> So, but it is fun. And, uh, yeah, the, the snowshoe hare hunting is, is really pretty cool. And it's a, a slightly different experience with dogs, but yeah, it's fun. Hey, what, you know, we never really dove into this. Tell us about your podcast. Tell, tell everybody about what you do. It, it's fun to listen to. I've enjoyed it. So tell everybody what, if they were to find you, what they would get into. Oh yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. So, uh, so I have a podcast called the east to west hunting podcast and it's uh we started it in late 2017 and so it started um it kind of came out of that first trip we did out west uh to colorado in 2016 so i was a kind of guy that had always wanted to go out west um when i was in my 20s it was something that i just always had that dream of doing but I didn't know how to get started and I didn't have anybody that would really want to go and didn't have time. And I was working a lot and trying to, you know, just got married. And so I never had that opportunity. I just never took it. And then um, met my friend, Jeff Jones at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers National Rendezvous in 2016. And uh, he was of the same mind, same situation. So we pulled off that hunt and we had an incredible time. And so the whole inspiration for that podcast was kind of spawned there and we you know one thing led to another and we started blogging about doing um do-it-yourself western hunts and trying to be a credible voice and like providing good quality resources for people that might have an interest started a facebook group and then we started blogging and so one thing led to another and yeah by late 2017 we started the podcast and our mission is to just help people get started and to try to keep them going and so it's not just western hunting oriented it's kind of evolved over time to just be um, our core values are like mentorship and just like for new hunters out there we want to provide you know trustworthy information and like you know provide support for them in a way that's like okay um, we can relate to these folks they can help us get going and we'll keep you going so it's it's mentorship. I like to blend in some conservation advocacy for the public land side of things and for the forestry. And that's kind of just because of my background and what my passions are. And yeah, just providing that support for people. It's like, we, you know, our goal is to just help you get out there and, and keep you going. Uh, we're a grassroots podcast, self-sponsored. 
and just something that I am so thankful to the community. We've, you know, for the people that listen every week, it's, it's just really humbling and I love it. Um, so it's East to West hunting podcast. It's on Stitcher and iTunes and all the places that people listen. And, um, yeah, we're on Instagram and Facebook and, uh, we have an incredible group of listeners and, uh, that's what inspires me is just, you know, the, you know, any, as you guys know, like doing the podcast, it's like, um, when you, when you get those listeners and the feedback and they're like, oh, that's great. That's something I, I wanted to learn about, or, Hey, that's a unique perspective. And it just, it really inspires you and drives you to want to keep going and provide good content. Exactly. Exactly. So I'd like to kind of, I don't want to wrap this up just yet, but I want to kind of play a lightning round. And Kevin and I, we haven't talked about this. So I'm going to throw it out there. I've got some quick questions that I want to ask you that are not, we don't have to get too in depth on them, but they're kind of like a lightning round. And like, I'll spitball one, you answer. Kevin, you spitball one, he'll answer. And just kind of go back and forth real quick in, in a fun way to end the show on a, on a high note. Does that sound all right with you? Sounds great. All right. As a forester, what's your favorite kind of tree? <laughs> Sugar maple. <laughs> all right. I was going to say what kind of wood did you like, but I didn't know. I don't know you that well. Okay. <laughs> Sugar maple. <laughs> All right, cool. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> what uh I that wasn't what I was expecting. Um what what's your uh your your deer gun of choice? Oh, my deer gun choice is a um I hunt with a 30-06 bolt action Tika T3 uh composite stock lightweight um rifle and it's a versatile rifle. It can handle Western hunting or Adirondack deer hunting. I love it. Very cool. Uh, optics. I am a vortex kind of guy. Like I, I, I have a couple of, uh, like I have a vortex uh, set of binoculars and I have a vortex spotting scope and um, they're reasonably priced. Uh, they're mid market. And they're, what I found is that I just, they're good for you know they're worth the money in my opinion for like mid-market kind of optics cool we i guess kind of touched on the whole hunt to eat thing which is really cool and if anybody hasn't heard of that check it out hunt to eat on instagram and and all the different social media platforms but what uh what's a go-to meal in your house uh for the hunt oh goats yeah, so go to the you know, Eat fans might know that my go-to favorite wild game food is home canned venison. So what I do is I take the venison and I can it in mason jars and process it, and it's cooked, and then you can put it on your pantry shelf, and you can pull it off, and it's as good as anything you're going to eat anywhere. It's, like, incredible. You can really? My, yeah, burritos. Take grilled burritos, put canned venison meat in it, and uh, it's like pulled pork texture, some cheese, whatever you want, you know, good beer, and you're all set, good to go. It's Ooh, awesome. Follow-up question, favorite beer? Utica Club. So I'm giving you, that's my cult beer. So, yep. okay. you know, if you're looking for like my my favorite, like old school beer, like as far as sure. like old school, there's, there's two different kinds of beer. I'm going to go, I'm going to give you three. Okay. I'm going to give you like the cheap beer kind. Yeah. Like the conventional stuff is Utica club. It's just, I like it. Yep. I um, and I also like, right pe- now. yeah. And then, 
Um, if I'm looking for a nice um, ale, I, I really like Ubu Ale from Lake Placid Brewing. There you go. And, Another personal um, favorite of mine. Yep. And I'm a big Dale's Pale Ale fan, like from, uh, you know, from Colorado. Have you ever had it? Dale's sure Pale have. Ale. It's, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Those are my favorites. That's, That's awesome. Really cool. <laughs> uh, if you could only hunt one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mule deer. I, I would not hesitate to say that if I could only hunt one thing for the rest of my life, it would be mule deer. I just have this thing for mule deer and where you hunt them. And um, I love it. It's crazy. See that I, Not to digress, but that's very bold because you'd have to travel every time you wanted to go hunt. I, go out your back door. I, I know that. And I, I, I am tempted to tell you that it'd be big woods deer hunting in the Adirondacks, but I have, if, if I could only hunt one week a year for the rest of my life, but it could only be one species and I, you know, and I had the means to travel, it would be mule deer. I we just spent the I whole just, show talking about how great it was to go hunting up in the Adirondacks. And now you're saying <laughs> that we get I just here. blew the podcast. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, I, I love it. I love the Adirondack hunting and um, I'll always do it. I, I'm one of these guys that, wants to be the dude that's 85 years old still tracking deer and i hope to be able to do that but uh yeah mule deer that's another podcast topic but uh it, for it's sure fun yeah it's really cool. cool yeah uh i got i got one last one in me here uh you had mentioned that you've had a beagle before uh but you didn't give us a beagle's name and then what uh what other dogs have you had Oh yeah. So we, we've had a whole bunch of beagles and, you know, so the beagles we've had, there's probably 3 million other beagles out there with names like that. So I had a beagle named lady. I had a beagle named Snoopy, Daisy, Rascal and Rocky. So like, there you go. Generic beagle names. (laughs) And and then uh, the dog that we have right now was uh, she's a, like a lab mix. She's a mix. Um, she's a great house dog. She doesn't hunt. Um, she is 13 and she is just incredible with our daughter. She's like a real light white color. She's got caramel spots on her ears. Her name's Lily and, uh, she's an awesome family dog. Yeah. I love her. Well, do you have anything you want to leave our listeners with any final thoughts? I would say first, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to be on your podcast because I admire what you're doing. It's a quality show, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to to connect and get to know you guys a little better. So thanks a lot. And I would just say that for people outside the Adirondack region, um, if you're in the east, you're looking for some kind of different, cool adventure, backwoods, wilderness kind of experience. Gosh, you know whether you fish whether you waterfowl hunt upland bird hunt or like you want to get into deer hunting or even if you just hike and camp um the adirondacks in my opinion are are, it's like one of the coolest places in the eastern united states it's just it's a great place to live i'm thankful for the opportunity to be here i'm a sixth generation adirondacker and so i live here deliberately you know because we want to raise our daughter here and um so come on up yeah check us out uh, East to West Hunting Podcast, and uh, keep in touch if you're in the area. That's fantastic. Todd, thank you so much for being a part of our our podcast. You answered great questions. You were enjoyable to speak with. It's always, you know, I, 
I always get nervous when we do these, like, oh, what are we going to have to talk about? And and then you get rolling with someone and, you know, we're all the same. We all care about the same things. We all have similar hobbies and we all are cut from the same cloth. And it, it was a pleasure speaking with you. I, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy everything that we discussed. So Todd Waldron from East to West podcast, give him a, a follow, check him out on Instagram, Facebook, and his podcast. Um, really appreciate it. And the next time I'm up in the Adirondack area, I'm giving you a look, buddy, and we'll go grab a Utica club together. That sounds great, guys. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be on your show and I'm excited to follow what you're doing. Good luck. We'll keep in touch. Look forward to that beer. (laughs) Thank you. All right. You enjoy your evening. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you enjoy the show and want to want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you hey listeners nick larson here host of the bird shop podcast as fans of this show you may be interested in the conversations on the bird shop podcast where we discuss all things upland hunting from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns bird dogs and gear used to pursue them whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more i interview a wide range of guests each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share if you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation please consider subscribing to the bird shop podcast today Thank you.